G'day you mob, Pete here, and this is another episode of Aussie English, the number one place for anyone and everyone wanting to learn Australian English. So, today I have a GOSS episode for you where I sit down with my old man, my father, Ian Smithson, and we talk about the week's news, whether locally down under here in Australia or non-locally <laughs> overseas in other parts of the world, okay? And we sometimes also talk about whatever comes to mind, right? If we can think of something interesting to share with you guys related to us or Australia, we also talk about that in the GOSS. So, these episodes are specifically designed to try and give you content about many different topics where we're obviously speaking in English and there are multiple people having a natural and spontaneous conversation in English. So, it is particularly good to improve your listening skills. In order to complement that though, I really recommend that you join the podcast membership or the academy membership at aussieenglish.com.au where you will get access to the full transcripts of these episodes, the PDFs, the downloads, and you can also use the online PDF reader to read and listen at the same time, okay? So, if you really, really want to improve your listening skills fast, Get the transcript, listen and read at the same time, keep practicing, and that is the quickest way to level up your English. Anyway, I've been rabbiting on a bit, I've been talking a bit. Let's just get into this episode, guys. Smack the bird, and let's get into it. Go for it. All right, so you want to do your story? Hey, everyone. You got one, you got one that you want to bring I up? have, I have. Um, hope it's a cracker. Hope it's a ripper. Hope it's, it's a, a beaut. belter. We're two bees in, guys. So we've we've recorded a few of these already. So um, sorry if we're a little hyperactive. Hey, uh, uh, speak for myself. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, he's sorry. I'm not. Dad gets slow. Uh, I get fast. Yeah, we might as well be hyperactive. It'd be more boring if we were asleep. Um, Don Bradman's first baggy green cap, and we'll explain all of this. Um, sells to Kurt Cobain fan for four hundred and fifty thousand dollars. There is a headline that I never thought I would read. Why does it have to be Kirk Cobain? It fan? becomes obvious <laughs> when you read the story. So we'll we will pass that and pass, not pass, and we'll explain the different bits. So Don Bradman, firstly, was Australia's greatest ever cricketer, mm-hmm. the world's greatest ever cricketer. Almost had an average of a hundred. If you if you take um, statistical evidence of people's performance. He is so far and away the best sports person who has ever lived. <laughs> Your average, a very good, as he was a batsman, a batter in cricket. As a, and we are now supposed to use the term batter, which is perfectly reasonable because there are many women who play the game. And so batsman no longer would, and batswoman sounds stupid. So batter perfect, works perfectly. He was the world's best batter at his time. The a very good <laughs> international cricketer has a batting average of about 40. That is, they will make an average of 40 runs every time they go out. And we're every not going to go and explain the whole game balls, of cricket. Yeah. So, a very good cricketer will be 50. There are a handful, literally four or five cricketers who have an average of 60. His average is 99.94. So, he is 50% better than anybody else who has ever played the game. Do you think that has to do to some degree with the calibre of bowler back in the day. Why did nobody else have an average like that? Of what? Him, of personally. Him during yeah. that time. Why did no other batsman have- And in fact, most other batsmen 
then had lower averages than the best batsman in the world now. Yeah, um, it's a very weird. And so thing, yeah, right? he was clearly just so good it was ridiculous. So he is he's the sort of icon of Australian sport. For he played in the nineteen twenties, thirties, and forties. There's video of him uh, showing how he used to practice at home using a. Um, a golf ball and a cricket stump. A golf ball and a cricket stick, stump, basically. Against a corrugated tin barrel or- Yeah, or like it was a um, water tank. Water yeah. tank. So, effectively, you have this thing that has these waves of horizontal lines around the tank mm. of iron. A golf ball, which, you know, needless to say, is very hard and-, and, and small. Small. And then he's using a round stick- And hitting it to hit into the- <laughs> the golf ball yeah. again and again and again into this tank. Yeah. And you're like, there are so many- Round edges here that would send the ball in all sorts of directions, <laughs> and he's just crushing it like yeah. just bang, yeah. bang, bang, it's bang. Ridiculous, insane. So, yeah, so that's setting that scene. He is the most famous Australian sports person ever. A baggy green cap, which is what the baggy green refers to, is the cap that is given to Australian cricketers when they play for Australia. So when you first get named to play for Australia, you'll get handed a cap. It is not like part of the uniform. You don't get a different one every time you play. You get one. Um, and he actually gave his first one away and was then given a second one. But almost all players um, only ever have one. So, you've got players who play 100 matches for Australia over a period of, say, 10 or 15 years, and their baggy green cap is literally falling apart, but they only ever wear one. Uh, unless this, it completely and this is why they're nicknamed the, the baggy, baggy greens. greens. Yeah. yeah. And so, he- it. And obviously, he died a long time ago, but this was the cap that he was given first in 1928 um, when he first played for Australia. It went to auction um, and it was passed in. We don't know what price was offered, but the person who bought it was Australian businessman Peter Friedman, who, ironically, are we using a Rode microphone? Yes, we've got mm -hmm. Rode things. He is the owner of Rode. He <laughs> created Rode microphones. So, ah, crazy. Um, great Australian audiovisual company. <laughs> Um, thanks, Peter. Uh, so, he actually purchased the baggy green cap after the auction. So, it got passed in at auction. Obviously, they didn't get the price they wanted, but he paid $450,000 for it. God. That in itself is fairly amazing. But what is more amazing, I think, is that that is less than half of the price paid for another baggy green cap that was sold this year at auction. Shane Warne, who is arguably Australia's best ever bowler, um, in, in cricket, put his up for auction um, earlier this year to raise money for the bushfire appeals. Yeah. And it was sold for $1,007,500. Good God. Just Did, amazing. Who the hell bought that? Kirk Cobain fan. Uh, no. So, we're getting <laughs> well, back to Kirk Cobain. So, the, that. Now, the Kirk Cobain line is that Friedman is apparently a, um, a big fan of Kurt Cobain and he paid- $9 million for at auction for a guitar that had previously been owned by Kurt Cobain. So, he is clearly a memorabilia collector Good that God. has enough money to buy these things. More now, money than you could shake a stick at. Yeah, exactly. A lot of money. Or a cricket stump. Or a cricket stump, <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, I thought that was a um, an interesting one for because it's that headline that you just say, what? Um, so, yeah, interesting. What do you think of people that spend that kind of money on such frivolous crap? 
Yeah. Well, I, I can't speak for what Peter Friedman's going to do it. I don't know Peter, and I can't speak for what... And the article doesn't really talk about it. Although he did say he didn't want this to go to a museum. He wanted it to tour around so people could see it. Right. The I believe the Bradman Museum, and I could be wrong. I'll, I'll click on this later to find it out if I'm wrong. But um, I believe the Bradman Museum, which is a cricket museum named after Don Bradman, bought the Shane Warne. Or was bought, it was bought by actually it was bought by a private citizen who was going to donate it to them. But what they were going to do with it was they were going to tour it around Australia, yeah. um, so people a so people could see it, but b so they could raise more money. Then so they were donating a million dollars to the yeah. the cause for uh, uh, the Australian bushfire relief funds, um, but they were going to raise more money by having yeah, it touring around. So. Actually, purchasing it then had a purpose. It wasn't. I'm going to buy it and sit it in my, you know, in a safe in my home. Um, they were buying it to a put it in a museum so people could see it, but b to raise more money. So interesting idea. I guess that kind of ties in. We can finish up with my story of the mm. National Library finding a 120 year old chocolate box. Yeah, um, commissioned by Queen Victoria and owned by Banjo owned Patterson. Banjo Patterson. Who's more famous, Banjo Patterson or Queen Victoria? Well, I, was, I thought you were going to say well, Don Bradman. Or Don Bradman. Well, Don Bradman didn't eat chocolate, or at least not this in chocolate. Australia? In, in Australia? In Australia, I would, ma- I would imagine Banjo sure Patterson. He, he, Banjo he Patterson. He crap all over um, Victo- Queen, Queen Victoria. Victoria. Although we live in a state named after her. So. Yeah, funnily enough. <laughs> Although no one would know, right? No. Well, you know, it's named after somebody called Victoria. Probably her. So, this was a cool story, and I'll, I'll read the sort of first bit from the ABC mm. article here. Conservators- at the National Library of Australia have unearthed one of the world's oldest boxes of chocolates dating back 120 years to the time of the Boer War. And that is Boer spelt B-O-E-R, the war yes. that took place not in B-O-A-R South Africa. B-O-A-R or B-O-R-E. No, it's not boring and it's not a pig. <laughs> the souvenir chocolate tin was discovered at the bottom of a box of personal papers from the estate of Australian bush poet Andrew Barton Banjo Patterson. Remarkably, the chocolates were not only unmolested after more than a century- I don't know how you molest chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny how we use that phrase to mean like- um, To molest someone is obviously to, I I guess, effectively rape, usually used in young children. To injure them in some way. To molest children. But then it can be used to- um, If you molest something like an animal, it's not necessarily a sexual thing. It's more like you've just irritated it, disturbed it. Yeah. Um, touched it, word, moved I'm, it. I think the word actually comes from something. It actually means to eat it, but it's, so really? it actually means okay. it's reasonable here. But you know. anyway, so remarkably, anyway. the chocolates were not only unmolested after more than a century, but still looked almost good enough to eat. Yeah, I don't know. I saw the did photo. they try it? I, I didn't get down to the bottom <laughs> the, of the story before we got here. The chocolate bar marked it into six fingers still had remnants of old straw packing and silver foil wrapping. And the discovery astonished staff at the library's conservation lab who weren't expecting to find Banjo's sweets hidden amongst a career's worth of poetry, diaries, and newspaper clippings. So, apparently, what had happened was that all of these documents and everything else in Banjo's estate had been handed down from um, family member to family mm. member because I think Banjo died in 1941. I think, yeah, 1941. Yeah. And- it was only last year, I think, that it was handed in to a museum and they were like, you know, you can keep these, you can use these. Do what you want. Yeah, and it included the photo that is of him. And I was thinking, where's my wallet? But I don't have a $10 note. His photo on the no, $10 no. note. He's the guy wearing the hat on the blue Australian $10 note. Mm. That's Andrew Banjo Patterson. Um, so, 
Yeah, I thought it was a really cool story. They went through and there was an interesting part of it where there was a bit of a conflict, apparently, with Queen Elizabeth wanting to commission something like seventy to 80,000 boxes of chocolates to send over to South Africa to support the troops who were fighting in the Boer War against the, I guess they were South Africans, but they were the Dutch um, colonizers mm. of, of South Africa that they were Africanos. fighting against, yeah. the Afrikaans. And so, she had harassed Cadbury. She asked Cadbury to do it, but Cadbury were considering themselves at the time to be pacifists. Yeah, so they didn't want their chocolate uh, and they sent didn't to the war. Want, yeah. They refused initially to stamp the chocolate and the boxes with Cadbury, mm. but then eventually capitulated. They gave in. The interesting thing was Banjo Patterson wasn't a soldier in the Boer War. He went over there as a war correspondent a in journalist. 1900 yeah. for the- I've got it here somewhere. Who was it? The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Yes. That both still exist. Both still exist. Yeah. You can read those newspapers today. So, he used to write for them. He did. 120 years ago. And um, the cool thing was that they had some information in that article about Canadian soldiers having written in their diary that they were getting offered a lot of money for these chocolates. Lots of people wanted them and wanted to buy them because they obviously commemorated their time in South Africa at this war. And Banjo Patterson clearly whilst over there- Obviously, hawked or bought one of these <laughs> yeah, exactly. these boxes. They were going for like five to ten pounds, which must have been you know hundreds of bucks. Yeah, I imagine for these More these tins. And he never tucked into it. He never ate it. He well, just yeah, put it it's away funny and how saved that, it. How yeah, obviously kick Queen Victoria decided kick eat the, the yeah. freaking chocolate. But it's no Queen good Victoria to decided that she um, she wanted to send these as a way of providing food for. And chocolate was always a really good food. In, in these circumstances to send because it lasts, it lasts a for a long time. It's very yeah. difficult to destroy. Yes. Um, so, it's not fragile and doesn't go off in terms of you know, getting bacteria and so on. Um, so, they yeah, they sent this chocolate over for the troops to eat, but clearly there became this black market in selling it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was more well, valuable than actually eating it. So. How much was five pounds um, in 1900. 1900? What's that worth today? Let's see if we can work that out. Thousand bucks. Yeah, isn't that crazy? So oh, that's a guess. Whoa, holy crap! Okay, so a hundred pounds in nineteen hundred is the equivalent to twelve thousand pounds today, which is probably about twenty thousand dollars Australian. So five pounds, one twentieth of that, a thousand dollars. Boom! Touchdown! <laughs> Goal! That, to mix sporting metaphors. That is crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, that is a box of chocolates that at the time was bought on the black market for clearly a lot more than it was worth. <laughs> yes. Um, but did you want to talk a little bit about the Boer War and what it was, why it was taking place? My grandfather served in the Boer War. Exactly. Yeah. And you can tell that story on here too. Because yeah. he was- I think he was the one that you gave me to take to history class in year, yes. year 11, year 12. Yeah. Um, tell that story. Uh, Sing a, us a song, this is a This is a long story. Um, uh, one of my grandfathers, my father's father, mm-hmm. whom I never knew, he died when I was two years old. And um, he was in England and- in Australia, so and your father was and my estranged father from was his estranged family. from them, and he probably never knew I existed. So no. all of that aside, he you know um, he existed. I so. do. Yes, he was a minister in the Congregational Church of Scotland, and then moved to England. Um, but during the Boer War uh, in the you know in about nineteen hundred, um, he this is even before he became a minister. He didn't become a minister until nineteen oh eight. So, after but, he got back. Yeah, uh, but he served uh, not directly in the war, but I think he worked with the YMCA um, in the recovery and recuperation of soldiers. So, the soldiers are on the 
you know, the front fighting when they came back. The YMCA were one of the organisations that were providing not medical services, but rest and recuperation. So they were feeding them, looking after them, giving them things to do and so on. What does that stand for again? YMCA. Um, Young Men's Christian Association. Really? Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So this is just one of these things all over the world, huh? Yeah, yeah, and so um, yeah, he ser- so he served with them for a while in the Boer War. Uh, then he became a minister in 1908, and in the First World War, by the time the First World War had started, um, he was again working with the YMCA in France um, and doing the same sort of things. Uh, and then he joined up in 19 the end of 1915, early 1916, joined up um, and became a um, padre, a you know, minister in the Father. army. And yes, comes from father. Is that uh, Latin? Uh, I think it is. Yeah, I imagine originally. Uh, and yeah, so he uh, he was there and um, served for the rest of the war. Um, got injured twice. Was this? He was the guy one, that was running out and saving people, one, right? Two, Planting flags yeah, next to awarded two military crosses, people. which was the second highest award that a um, officer lower than major, I think, can be awarded. Um, yeah. The army for yeah, and the the second one that he got was um, the citation was more obvious. The first one was sort of you know did good stuff uh, <laughs> uh, in battle, but uh, the second one specifically mentioned that he was out in no man's land marking the sites of men who were injured. Um, so that the medical teams could come out and get them. So he was ahead of the medical teams in no man's land while the battle was going on, um, putting white flags next to men who were injured. Do you think it was given a pass by the enemy? Like they would see this guy's just <sighs> clearly not a threat and he's Look, trying to save people? Who knows? People, who knows? Um, just- yeah, I think there is a bit of that. Uh, and I'll, I'll remind me if I don't get to it, but there's a, l- a great little story uh, related to that um, in, his, um, in some of his writings that I've got. Uh, but... I think there's a um, there's part of that that you know if you're wearing um, either a cross on you or, as in a medical cross um, or you're wearing a religious thing then I think there would be plenty of soldiers who would go don't shoot them Bali yeah, Bali yeah, exactly yeah. Um, uh, but yeah the the, the story about the uh, uh, the interesting part of that is there's a he tells a story of um, right near the end of the war because he was still there serving uh, right near the end of the war. Uh, he was working with a German doctor, um, and they were, this is by the time, effectively, in the place they were, the war had effectively ended. Um, it hadn't been, the armistice hadn't been declared, but clearly the Germans there had given up. And um, The Dutch, that, uh, well, the, uh, Germ- the were Germans. Germans there as well, were they? Well, the Germans there were, were fighting against, no, the Germans were fighting against the British. Ah, and okay, the Germans the had Dutch. basically given up at that stage. And um, he was, as a, um, a minister, uh, was out working with uh, injured men from both sides and this German doctor was working with them. And apparently the German doctor said, one day I hope people realise that we can get along. Yeah. And, and he said that you know, didn't change his life, but he just said, here's somebody that he and his countrymen had been fighting for nearly five years. Uh, for four and a half years, and so at right at the end, this German doctor has just said, "He's hoping that this is a signal that we can get along." 
<laughs> it reminds me of the um, story that I heard about the World War One Gallipoli Christmas party. Oh, yeah. Well, that was apparently quite common even on the um, the Western Front in France and Belgium. Do you want to tell those stories the, then? Yeah. That, that idea. Um, on- the Christmas um, truce. The Christmas truce. Christmas mm. Day. The they um, both the Allies and the <laughs> the opposition, the Germans, um, and the Turks. In the case of Gallipoli, uh, stopped fighting and sang Christmas carols together, and you know, threw food to each other, and do. And then next day, they started shooting at each other again. But it was almost like this: <sighs> it's Christmas Day. Let's stop trying to kill each other and. I can't imagine how much- It's not like they all sat down and started drinking together, and you know, but, no. but they just recognised. And because the trenches were so close together, mm. they could just call out to each other. You know, yeah. <laughs> you wonder who was the first person to try and suggest that and be like, I've got this idea. You, you yeah. Listen to me. Yeah, listen wait. To me. Yeah. Just wait. You'll get there. <laughs> You'll get there. Yeah. So, what, what does it say here on Wikipedia? The truce occurred only five months into the war. Hostilities had lulled yeah. as leadership on both sides reconsidered their strategies following the stalemate of the race to the sea and the indecisive result of the first battle of Ypres. 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 Yeah. In France. In the week leading up to 25th December, French, German and British soldiers crossed trenches to exchange seasonal greetings and talk. Yeah. And apparently that happened at other times as well, where they would just sing Christmas carols to each other. You know, some it's, in English, some in German. And they're, of course, they're crazy, the same right? carols. They're the same, yeah, same, same tunes. Songs. And they'd be singing them in German and English. And uh, it's, it, it, humanity is, is yeah. weird. Yeah, well, I was about to say just how much humanity that goes to show that these people still had, despite obviously also committing insane atrocities against one another, whether yeah. or not, you know, yeah. war crimes, but just literally killing one another yeah. in mud. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just crazy. Anything to finish up this episode with, Dad? Um, no, I've sort of run out. We've done about five or six episodes now, and I've run out of beer. Yeah, true. We're done. We should probably finish up. But yeah, thank you for joining us, guys, and we'll see you Thanks. next time. Bye. Alrighty, you mob, thank you so much for listening to or watching this episode of The Goss. If you would like to watch the video, if you're currently listening to it and not watching it, you can do so on the Aussie English TV channel on YouTube. This is different from the main channel. You'll be able to subscribe to that. Just search Aussie English TV on YouTube. And if you're watching this and not listening to it, you can check this episode out also on the Aussie English podcast, which you can find via my free Aussie English podcast application on both Android and iPhone. You can download that for free or you can find it via any other good podcast uh, app that you've got on your phone, Spotify, podcast from iTunes, Stitcher, whatever it is. I'm your host, Pete. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you have a ripper of a day and I will see you next time. Peace.